I'm not sure about the wisdom part, but uh, I do, you know, with age, I guess it does come some wisdom, at least if you can remember it, is the biggest problem. Um, recently, in fact, just Wednesday evening, Marvin had given us a bit of a lesson on history, and uh, my message is about history. And this morning, Eldon read about from Genesis, which is history. And so we, we got a lot of history, and uh, we'll get into that. But I'm, I'm basically, I'm going to pick on a group of people that are, uh, I guess you would say they're relatives of ours or in the same category as us, as Anabaptists. Um, but first, I want to read from Acts chapter 5, and we'll start with verse 5, uh, with 27. But before we do that, I want to give a little bit of a background. The uh, apostles were out and doing miracles, meeting the people, and the people were just just flocking to them like like everything because they, they uh, saw what the miracles they were doing and all the things that were happening. And it actually made the Sadducees jealous. And so they grabbed them and put them in a prison for overnight at least, and it says a public jail. But during the night, an angel of God came and took them by their hand and brought them out, just like they walked through the doors. So the next day, why the uh, high priest summoned the Sanhedrin and said, okay, uh, go to the jail and get to bring these apostles here. They came back and said, they're not there, they're gone. They're, the doors are closed, I mean, everything's locked. The guards are outside the door and they're gone. They're, they're not there anymore. And uh, so they were perplexed and that should have been enough right there to say, whoa, this is something else that's not, not normal. So in verse 27, and when they had brought them, they stood them before the council and the high priest questioned them and saying, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than people. The God of our forefathers raised up Jesus whom you seized and killed by hanging him on a tree. And God exalted him to his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are witnesses to these events, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God hath given to those who obey him. Now when they heard this, they became furious and wanted to execute them, but a Pharisee, whose name was Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was respected by all the people, stood up in the council and ordered the men to, put his, to be put outside for a short time. Then he said to the council, Men of Israel, pay close attention to what you are about to do to these men. And he gave some examples of certain men that had rose up and looked like they were going to be a rebellion and going to be some uh, a revolt of some kind and and those were killed and soon came to nothing then he says in verse uh, 38 and so in this case i say to you stay away from these men and leave them alone because of this plan or this undertaking or originates with people it will come to nothing but it, if it is from God, you will not be able to stop them, or you may even be found to be fighting against God. And he convinced them, and they summoned the apostles and had them beaten, and then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and release them. So they left the council rejoicing because they had been considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of this name. And every day, both in the temple courts and from house to house, they did not stop preaching and teaching, proclaiming the good news that Jesus was the Christ. And that's kind of what the 
the verse I'm going from is that even though they were told to shut up and be quiet, they, they kept on preaching and teaching. Uh, you school children, how many of you like history? Kind of a question. How many of you don't like history? I think on Monday, was it you went to Boone, Iowa and had a train ride? Do you know that was history? You learned about it, old trains and things like that and things like, you know, that, that was actually history. And that was kind of exciting, wasn't it? Or did some of you get bored with that? Except for Hannah couldn't go because she was sick. But anyway, um, do you like history tests? Kind of like? Or were you, are you like this one student that had a, they had a history test and the first question was pretty easy, the second was fairly easy. Then the third question was, when was the War of 1812? And she said, I don't know. The person, I, I'm not picking boy or girl. <laughs> anyway, I don't know. I can't figure that out. The teacher should know better because we can't memorize all those dates. How in the world are we going to know what, when this happened? <sighs> That's so hard. All of a sudden, wait a bit, wait, wait. 1812. It was 1812. Yeah. It was simple, wasn't it? Okay. Um, Today we have what they call a cancel culture. They want to remove statues and books and things like that from that they don't like because it gives history that they don't like. Does that change history? It doesn't, does it? It's history remains the same. And yeah, I know there's, if we lived in Germany and there was statues of Hitler there, we probably want to pull them down and throw them away too. But there's a lot of, a lot of statues that really don't in a sense, yeah, they maybe did the wrong things, but they shouldn't offend us that much that we have to throw them away. I want to do some quotes about history. Um, and these are about five different quotes. A people without knowledge of their past history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. That was by George Orwell. The most effective way to destroy people is to deny and obliterate their own understanding of history. Another one, if you don't know history, then you don't know anything. You are a leaf that doesn't know it is part of a tree. A generation which ignores history has no past and no future. And uh, the one I probably like the best is if you, do, if you want to understand today, you have to search yesterday. Because there's a lot of things that, that are happening and if we would read history. And Jesus actually, uh, amplifies this in, 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 um, in, in scripture, and I'll read that a little later. I'm going to go to Anabaptist history. Our, our background is Anabaptist, and that includes Amish, Mennonites, Brethren, Hutterites, and Baptists even, because the Baptists have a lot of history in the Anabaptist movement. And it also would actually include any church that would be, uh, that believes in a believer's baptism rather than infant baptism. If you want some uh, resources to study this, I don't know how many of you are familiar with a website called Gameo, General Anabaptist Mennonite Encyclopedia Online. If there's anything you want to know about Mennonites, just go on that site and it has everything there you can think of. I'm not sure if our church is on there, but a lot of, a lot of different churches are and a lot of different people. Um, you can read books. When we lived in Canada, we went to Steinbeck in Winnipeg, and Steinbeck was our closest big city. And uh, 
Winnipeg has more Mennonite churches than any other city in the world. I don't know if you knew that or not. But uh, in Steinbach is a, a museum, a Mennonite museum there of how the Mennonites lived when they first came to Canada. And I, what I want to do is go back to their roots. Um, they, they have a sod house and they have a different houses, wood houses, and then later the barn house and then to the modern day, and it's very interesting. Another book that I would recommend everybody reads is called Up From the Rubble by uh, Peter Dick. And it is a history of, of the Russian Mennonites that were in, Rush in Germany as refugees and then moved to Paraguay. And then were moved to the Chaco. And I think it's in the library, but I'm not sure, you know, Carol, if it is or not. I, I don't know. I, if it isn't, I'll look my library and put it in the library if it isn't. But that book should be a must read for everyone, up from the rubble. Uh, the other one that I've met quite a bit of times is Edward Clausen. And I don't know how many of you have ever heard him play the Paraguayan harp. I know Eldens have. Uh, but he is from Paraguay, originally married a, a Mennonite lady from Winnipeg or Manitoba. And uh, he plays the harp, the big the Paraguayan Indian harp. And then he tells stories of growing up in the Chaco in Paraguay. And he's a very interesting man. But, uh, okay, let's go back. I'm going back to, my notes here. What Jesus had to say about it. Uh, That's strange. I put it here somewhere. Here we go. Yeah. He he told they were they were listening to Jesus. This is in uh, Acts five again, or no, in uh, Matthew, Matthew five. He said, "I have a testimony greater than that from John for the deeds that the Father has assigned me to complete and the deeds that I am now doing. Testify about me that the Father has sent me, and the Father who sent me has himself testified about me. You people have never heard his voice nor seen his form at any time, nor do you have his word residing in you because you do not believe the one whom I sent. He, you study the scriptures thoroughly because you think in them you, you possess eternal life, and it is these scriptures that testify about me, but you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. I do not accept praise from people, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another and don't seek the praise that comes from the only God? He was chastising them because they didn't believe that he was God. Do you not suppose that I will accuse you before the Father? The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have placed your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote about me. But if you do not believe me, what, believe what Moses wrote, how will you believe my words? Basically he's saying, you, you studied history, you studied the Old Testament, the Torah, you studied all these things, and you don't believe them, because you haven't studied them to really find out what the truth is. And the truth is that I'm the Father, and if, if you'd, you don't have to believe me for what I'm doing, but if you believe Moses, you didn't even believe Moses. You didn't believe history. So there he's chastising for that. Okay, I'm going to read several accounts 
of the Russian Mennonites, and they were actually from Holland originally, um, and they moved to eastern Poland and then into Russia in 1778, at this point they moved in. One thing, we have to have a little bit of a language uh, study here first. They moved to the Ukraine in what they called the Steppe, S-T-E-P-P-E. -E. Well, guess how you pronounce that word? <laughs> it's pronounced steppe. But what does it mean? What's a steppe? It actually means the plains. In our language, it would be the plains of Ukraine. And uh, it is a latitude approximately Duluth, Minnesota, even though it's close to the Black Sea. And I'm not even sure what language that S-T- EPPE is, but it's, uh, if you know French, um, like a two-door car, what do you, does anybody know what do you call a two-door car in French? I mean, in English, too. It's a coupe, but it's pronounced coupe. <laughs> it looks spelled coupe, but it's a coupe, C-O-U-P. So that's, that's the way a lot of languages are. There's a, there's a letter there, but it's silent. Okay. Okay, first I'm going to read the account that is actually comes from Behalt in Holmes County, there's a museum there, and I'm sure that David Stolz probably knows where it's at. By the way, David here is from Holmes County. He's driving the, uh, uh, what's the name of the bus line? <laughs> uh, Pioneer Trails bus that's sitting down here at the motel. And uh, we were back, we were together in Red Lake in 1968, so it's been a while. <laughs> anyway, that's a bit of history there. Okay, let's, I'm going to read the, uh, the Behalt account, but I'm also going to read another account that is, goes into a little more detail, but let's start with this one first. Last month, we began the journey east into Russia as Dutch and German Mennonites settled in the Ukraine under the invitation of a Russian government. Here they were granted large parcels of land and colonies, colonies developed. These were not communal colonies like the Hutterites. Rather, each family was given a parcel of land that was their own. Most of the people lived in small villages and traveled to their land which they farmed. As the colonies grew, new villages were started to keep the people close to their farms. The pattern follows an age-old European tradition where families often did not live directly on the lands they farmed. This was for safety and also allowed the, be the best land to be farmed rather than settled in villages. So the colony was first settled in 1788 to 89. It was often called the Old Colony. At its peak, the colony owned 405,000 acres of land and had a population of 14,000 people in 19 villages. Each family who initially settled there was given 175 acres of land, and the people could farm or develop other economic structures, as, such as factories and shops. The government promised these people freedom in religious matters, but they were not permitted to try and convert their non-Mennonite neighbors. They were exempted from military service and not forced to swear oaths. It appeared as though the Mennonites had finally found their place where they farmed, worshiped, and raised their families. As the colonies grew, they appealed to the government for more land and other colonies were developed. By the late 1800s, the Mennonites owned several million acres of land and were a significant factor in the agriculture industry in Russia. By the early years of the 1800s, there were, of the 1900s, there were over 100,000 Mennonites in these Russian colonies and with none of this growth coming as a result of outreach, but rather family growth and resettlement by other Mennonites. Mennonites developed not only farms and farm-related businesses, but also numerous factories and businesses 
and as their height, they accounted for at least 6% of Russia's industrial uh, output. Do you think maybe 6% isn't a lot, but when you think of how large Russia is and how much, what the economy was, it's a huge amount. Some of the factories and farms employed hundreds of people, including Russian peasants and other Mennonites. Their villages were well developed, and many of the wealthier Mennonites lived in large brick homes with magnificent gardens and orchards. Old people's homes, orphanages, schools, and hospitals were started to take care of their own. The, these colonies were often seen as model success stories and were noted as the most prosperous and well-developed rural communities of all Russia. Soon, each colony was responsible for not only their religious governance, but also their civic world. They became enclaves to the culture much different from the Russian world that surrounded them. In order to hold office in the colonies, one needed to be a Mennonite, which resulted in a small group of men who had tremendous power and influence. This murky relationship between religious and civil government is ultimately what led to the demise of the Russian Mennonites. The first fissure that developed within the group was in 1814, about 25 to 30 years after the group had moved to the colony. A small group felt that the spiritual life of the church was beginning to diminish. A specific concern was the lack of personal and corporate morality and power that some of the leaders used in punishing civil crimes and the support of the Russians' military through taxes. This group became known as the Kleine Gemeinde, small church is the English term for it a name they continued as they later immigrated to Canada and to the Americas. Like the Hutterites, the Russian Mennonites grew rapidly and had tremendous financial, culture, and social influence in the society around them. And like, and like all the groups that focus on self-governance and isolation, the colonies grew rapidly but faced unique issues that would eventually lead to their demise. It was these issues that would eventually lead to the neighbors, their neighbors to retaliate and strike against them. Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with, I know that some of you have been to Belize. There's a large group of Kleine Gemeinde in Belize and old colony Mennonites too. The old colony would be more like the Amish is that they don't have uh, cars, but they drive horse and buggy or horse and wagons. A lot of them, with, they have rubber tires in their wagons, but they, they still use steel wheel tractors and things like that. And there are a lot of those in Mexico and Bolivia. And the Kleine Gemeinde, there are a lot in Canada and some in Mexico and also in uh, in Belize, there's a large group of them there. Um, but one of the things that noted, they lost, they lost their first love. I think, uh, yeah, they were prosperous and they had things really going for them, but they lost that first love and, and the reason, or, or the actual focus of why they were in this world. I want to go back into a little more Mennonite history, I mean, Anabaptist history, uh, and we'll look at that then. And the other thing was, was the, the power that they gained, and it became their de a detriment to them. I'm going to just read a quote from a, a person that was there at, that lived in that time. Our memories of Mennonite life in this region are etched with deeply contradictory images. On the one hand, we remember a resplendent culture. We celebrate an idyllic pastoral existence. These images have encouraged us to revere the Mennonite story as a golden age, an age of economic prosperity, political engagement, cultural riches, richness, and re religious vitality. But memories of a very different kind are also deeply embedded in our imagination. Scenes of waste, destruction, and pillage of fields, villages, and factories laid bare 
accounts for starvation, torture, and death that are almost too horrific for us to remember. And that's how it ended there. I'll read that account a little bit later. That uh, John Weaver had something on his Facebook page that I thought was really good. I want to read that. And maybe it'll explain a little bit of what's, what happened there. Um, somewhere I have it here. Here it is. And if you remember, they, they were told not to witness to their neighbors. If you remember, the, uh, the apostles were told not to witness. They did anyhow. They went ahead. And, and the Mennonites over there had a good witness in the fact that they did. They had people from the, the local people were more nomads and type of that type, not in so much into farming as raising maybe sheep and goats. But they did give them jobs and actually treated most of them pretty well. But there were some that didn't, and that came back to bite them. <clears throat> so I want to read this. If you don't become a reconciler of the lost, you will become an evaluator of the saved. There is something inherent in our nature that wants to see people get right with God. And when we don't direct it at the lost, we will direct it at the saved. Then instead of pursuing sinners, we will spend our time policing the saints. All of us have been called to be fishers, fishers of men, but when those who have been called to fish don't fish, they fight. When energy that was meant to be used outside the church is used inside the church, the result is explosive. Instead of casting nets, we throw down stones, we throw stones. Instead of becoming teachers we, for the lost, we become critics of the saved. Instead of extending helping hands, we point accusing fingers. And instead of helping the hurting, we hurt the helpers. And sadly, the lost go unreached. The poor go unfed, and the confused get con consoled. And the fused, confused go unconsoled. But when those who are called to fish, fish, they flourish. Souls are reached, and their lives are changed, and the world is impacted. Um, I think that's something we should really consider, and it's very true, that when the church focuses on maybe inwardly and not outwardly, some of the wrong things happen. And I think that's what happened there. And I'm not just picking on them. This, this is a story that, that I've often you know, done a lot of studying on, a lot of reading about, about the Russian Mennonites. But I think we're in the same, we can be in the same boat if we, don't, if we don't focus on the right thing. Now, I want to read the other account of Anabaptism. And some of this is going to be a bit of overlap. Um, and, the, and some, one, of the, one of the things that I had just found out this past year that I didn't even know, but Anabaptists were severely persecuted, if you remember, back in, in Switzerland uh, in the early days right after the Reformation. They were basically drowned. They were, it just got really bad. And uh, they were invited by the person that was in charge, I don't know if it was a king or queen or what it was, to the Alsace-Lorraine area where a lot of our ancestors come from. But I, one thing I didn't know is that they were given a place to be there and to live in peace there, but they were not to witness to their neighbors. They were not to uh, 
pass on their belief to others. And, uh, and I don't know how many of them did that or didn't do that. But that didn't last real long either because then before too long there was persecution there. And uh, the, the Russian Mennonites are actually Dutch Mennonites. They're from, from Holland. And uh, I wanted to read a little bit more about them. And uh, Oldenburg was, was a, uh, a queen there. And she sought to keep her domain in refuge, but she was only able to do so for five years. After which she was forced to sign a document decreeing all Anabaptists on her land to be killed. This compelled the Mennonites to look to other countries for refuge. Many of them were farmers who had vast experience with constructing dikes and canals to keep water off their lands. They felt it was an answer to prayer when the Polish King Władysław IV in Poland and Prussia were often, they fought and so they changed, the borders changed. But at this point, uh, they had uh, some lowlands there that is like a swampy land that needed to be drained and farmed. And so they asked, he asked these Mennonites to move there. And he gave them, uh, it was called the Vistula River Delta and the Baltic Sea area. He needed laborers to work the land to keep the marshy ground productive. And many Mennonites settled in the area and began farming. Unfortunately, times were hard and some sources say up to 80% of the people died of malaria or swamp fever, marsh fever, because of the high humidity and the, there are probably mosquitoes and things like that there too. In time, the Vistula River Delta became Western Prussian territory. Frederick I invited the Mennonites specifically to resettle in Eastern Prussia in the early 1700s, and they didn't stay more than a decade, however, because they refused to serve in the military and then on account of their belief in non-resistance, and so were kicked out of the country. In 1740, they were given special military exemption in Prussia, and many Mennonites returned. Between 1648 and 1815, the times changed drastically. First, discrimination subsided more and more and diverse religious theology was tolerated. Second, the Mennonites experienced general economic success, which pleased the Prussian government, but built feelings of, of envy among the neighboring peoples out of Mennonite heritage. Third, Mennonites increasingly attained high social status and even political positions. After switching statehood numerous times, Poland once again switched to Prussian sovereignty in 1772. And Frederick the Great, ruler at the time, was very accepting of the Mennonites, and, but demanded they pay military and church taxes, which went toward the state church and not their own church, rather than, yeah. The Mennonites refused to pay both of these taxes, and as a result, the government, government put a ban on Mennonites buying any more land, and thus began the migration to Russia. So they moved to Russia more out of persecution in Prussia than they did uh, because they were offered the land there. Between 1762 and 1763, Catherine the Great, which was uh, the Empress of Russia, or Queen of Russia, gave an invitation to Germans and other Europeans to become settlers in the land in southern Russia. This was land which they had acquired from the Turkish people because there was a war between them and Turkey, and so they had won this land. Within 10 years, there were more than 100 German villages, but the Mennonite people did not respond to the invitation earlier than 1780s. And even then, it was not so much opportunity to settle in the land as it was the fact that they were having problems in Prussia. They gave such an appealing report of the settlement opportunities that two men were sent to Prussia to scout out the prospects. After their return a year later, they gave a positive report concerning both the land and the concord which they had made with the authorities in St. Petersburg. They had, in fact, even had the honor of speaking to Catherine the Great. 
A special charter that the Mennonites received was not that different from that which other settlers received. As a result of Russian colony policy, the settlers were asked to sign a document promising that they would remain separated from the general public of Russia in order to keep their own affairs independent of their Russian neighbors. And this suited the Mennonites just fine as they placed utmost value on their own religious, educational, and economic freedom. They did, in fact, receive a guarantee of complete religious freedom and unconditional exemption from the military service. And so the first eight Mennonite families moved to Russia via covered wagon in 1788. And they got down close to Turkey, but because there was war going on there, they stayed in this one village for the winter. And the next day, they moved on down to the first colony was called Chartitsa, and it was down uh, closer to the Black Sea. Um, there they established the first village, which was then called the Old Colony. Each family would receive 500 rubles, and many only received it some eight years later. In spite of the intense hardships experienced in these settlers, the Chartitsa colony quickly grew into 15 separate villages with 89,100 acres of land by 1800. A second colony, Molchna, was established 100 miles southeast of Chortitsa a few years later. During these initial years in Russia, there was very few regulations imposed on the Mennonites by their Russian rulers. Schools were established by each village, and, but many parents often kept their children at home to help with the immense amount of chores to be done. Each village elected their own teachers from the community and often, and most schools used the Bible and the catechism as their school text. In most villages, the schoolhouses also doubled as a church building. Each village elected their own mayor and the whole Chartitsa colony also elected a leader who acted as a delegate to the Russian authorities and handled all other outside businesses. So you see that, you know, they, experienced some hardships to start with, but it, it, it soon they were able to, uh, to uh, prosper and go on. The, the land was very rich there, but it was also a dry land, so they, I don't know if they even knew what irrigation was at that time, but it was more like Kansas and uh, Dakotas, like that type of a climate. And so they, they developed wheat and the, the the Russian hard wheat that is, or the red wheat that is over here now, it came from that era. It was, um, they were also very good at, uh, first when they had, before they could really start farming, they had horses and sheep and goats and things like that, which they kept improving the, the breed. And they also had orchards and things like that where they were very prosperous and very good people as far as, uh, as being able to do that. In the beginning of the 1800s, the Prussian government began to realize the impact of losing many of its valuable and contributing citizens. In order to slow the flow of immigrants, Prussia relaxed the land taxes and placed a tax on 10% of all one owned and anyone leaving the country. So if you wanted to leave, they taxed you 10% for leaving. Um, they were also, they were, yeah, they had to pay money to be exempt from the military. They also went to St. Petersburg and were between in 1871 to 1873 to appeal to some of the decisions that Russia had made. And when the Russian officials realized that they would be a mass exodus, that they would be leaving the country, they made some of the changes that they, they saw later. But 
after everything, you know, they had really become prosperous. They had beautiful villages. They had houses. They said the houses that a lot of the rich, wealthier ones were brick houses with just a lot of things. That uh, I know one book I read said that they had some really beautiful singing. The, the, the people could really sing very well. And uh, so it was a time of, of prosperity, but that changed. And I don't know how many of you have heard of the, what they call the Bolshevik Revolution. That happened in about 18, 1917, actually. Uh, you can imagine during World War I, or two even, when you have the Germans coming into Russia, and there's German people living there, and they go east, and then they meet the Russians coming from the other way, and they go back, and they're Germans, and so that, that really causes a lot of confusion there. Um, I'll just read the one chapter here yet. Many, or one paragraph, many Mennonites feared that they would need to leave Russia or they would slowly lose their autonomy. Between 1873 and 1884, approximately 18,000 Mennonites left Russia, and with the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, the Mennonite villages were repeatedly terrorized. One of the leaders was a Nestor Machino, a man who had worked as a farmhand among the Mennonites, and he held many grievances against them and had his men plunder and utterly destroy many Mennonite villages. This resulted in a dark time for the Mennonites, and many young men left their stance of non-resistance as a group of men who took up against Machino called the Selbstschutz, which translates to self-protectors. And so they, they abandoned their non-resistance there. And, uh, but it's interesting to note that he, he had grievances against them, which probably means that he wasn't treated properly as a farmhand or whatever he, what job he had. Um, so many of the Mennonites who remain in Russia lost their lives as a result of various illnesses such as typhus, and many also had their homes plundered, and some families were massacred by bandits. After this time of war, a revolution, anarchy, and famine, approximately 25,000 more Mennonites immigrated to North America in the 1920s. After World War II, another 12,000 Mennonites refugees were accepted in Canada and the United States. And uh, this is... Uh, a story that started well but ended bad and we could say well they made they made some mistakes there they should have done differently but are we any better <clears throat> have we done anything what would have happened if we would have had the choice to do that how would we uh, I don't think we can point the fingers at them and say they did it wrong because how many times have we witnessed to our neighbors when we are not witnessed to our neighbors when we could have and and should have so I guess a challenge, I, I had a title for the message, and I had two titles, and I was going to see, maybe you can talk about that a little later, but a serious mistake or a fatal mistake? What was it? Was it a, just a serious mistake, or was it a fatal mistake that they made? In a, I think the thing that I was after was when they agreed that they would not... Uh, teach others about Christ. And uh, today, you know, that's what Jesus said. Go out and make disciples of all men. Go teach, go talk to others about. And have they lost, you know, was, was living a quiet and peaceable life more important than that? And uh, I know, how would I react to that? Thank you for listening.